Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 40, Leviticus chapter 26. Basically, we're done now with the law giving of Leviticus and the establishment of the holy rituals. So chapter 26 sort of stands back and it says, if you will follow what I've told you to do, then there's going to be many blessings heaped upon you. But if you don't follow what I've told you to do, then there's going to be much punishment. God's justice was then, and it is now, a two-way street. Where justice has no meaning at all. Let's read chapter 26 of Leviticus together. Open your Bibles, please. If you've got the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 141. Leviticus chapter 26. You are to not make yourselves any idols, erect a carved statue or a standing stone, or place any carved stone anywhere in your land in order to bow down to it. I am Adonai, your God. Keep my Sabbaths my Shabbats, revere my sanctuary, I am God. If you live by my regulations and observe my mitzvot, my commands, and obey them, then I will provide the rain you need in its season. The land will yield its produce. The trees in the field will yield their fruit. Your threshing time will extend until the grape harvest. And your grape harvesting will extend until the time for sowing seed. You'll eat as much food as you want and live securely in your land. I will give shalom in the land. You will lie down to sleep unafraid of anyone. I will rid the land of wild animals. The sword will not go through your land. You will pursue your enemies and they'll fall before your sword. Five of you will chase away a hundred. And a hundred of you will chase ten thousand. Your enemies will fall before your sword. I will turn toward you make you productive, increase your numbers and uphold my covenant with you. You will eat all you want from last year's harvest and throw out what remains of the old just to make room for the new. I'll put my tabernacle among you. I'll not reject you. But I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. I'm Adonai, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves. I have broken the bars of your yoke so that you can walk upright. But if you will not listen to me and obey all these mitzvot, if you loathe my regulations and reject my rulings in order not to obey all my mitzvot, but cancel my covenant, then I, for my part, will do this to you. I'll bring terror upon you. Wasting disease, chronic fever to dim your sight and sap your strength... You'll sow your seed for nothing because your enemies will eat the crops. I'll set my face against you. Your enemies will defeat you. Those who hate you will hound you. They'll flee and you'll flee when no one's even pursuing you. Now, if these things don't make you listen to me, then I'll discipline you seven times over for your sins. I will break the pride you have in your own power. I'll make your sky like iron, your soil like bronze. You'll spend your strength in vain because the land will not yield its produce or the trees in the field their fruit. Yes, if you go against me, 
and don't listen to me, I will increase your calamities sevenfold according to your sins. I will send wild animals among you. They'll rob you of your children. Destroy your livestock, reduce your numbers until your roads are deserted. And in spite of all this, you refuse my correction. And still you go against me. Then I too will go against you. And yes, I will strike you seven times over for your sins. I'll bring a sword against you, which will execute the vengeance of the covenant. You'll be huddled inside your cities, and I'll send sickness among you. You'll be handed over to the power of the enemy. I'll cut off your supply of bread, so that ten women will bake your bread in one oven and dole out your bread by weight, and you'll eat but not be satisfied. And if for all this you will still not listen to me but go against me, then I will go against you furiously. And I also will chastise you yet seven times more for your sins. You'll eat the flesh of your own sons. You'll eat the flesh of your own daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your pillars for sun worship. Throw your carcasses on the carcasses of your idols. I will detest you. I will lay to waste your cities, make your sanctuaries desolate, so as not to smell your fragrant aromas. I will desolate the land so that your enemies living in it will be astounded by it. You I will disperse among the nations. I will draw out the sword in pursuit after you. Your land will be a desolation. Your city is a wasteland. Then at last, then at last, the land will be repaid its Shabbats. As long as it lies desolate and you're in the lands of your enemies, the land will rest and be repaid Shabbats. Yes, as long as it lies desolate, it will have rest. The rest it didn't have during your Shabbats when you lived there. As for those of you who are left, I will fill their hearts with anxiety in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf will frighten them. So they will flee as one flees from the sword and fall when no one's pursuing Yes, with no one pursuing, they'll stumble over each other as if they're fleeing from the sword. You will have no power to stand before your enemies. And among the nations you will perish. The land of your enemies will devour you. Those of you who remain will pine away in the lands of your enemies from guilt over your misdeeds and those of your ancestors. Then they will confess their misdeeds and those of their ancestors which they committed against me in their rebellion, they will admit that they went up against me. And at that time, I will be going against them, bringing them into the hands, in the land, rather the lands of their enemies. But if their uncircumcised hearts will grow humble, and they are paid the punishment for their misdeeds, then I will remember my covenant with Yaakov. Also my covenant with Isaac to my covenant with Abraham, and I'll remember the land. For the land will lie abandoned without them, and it will be paid its Shabbats while it lies desolate without them. And they will be paid the punishment for their misdeeds because they rejected my rulings, they loathed my regulations. Yet in spite of all that, I will not reject them when they are in the lands of their enemies, nor will I loathe them to the point of utterly destroying them and thus break my covenant with them because I'm at an either God. Rather, for their sakes, 
I will remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt with the nations watching so that I might be their God. I'm Adonai. These are the laws, rulings, and teachings that Adonai himself gave to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai through Moshe. The first three verses of Leviticus 26 remind Israel of a short list of the most important principles God has set down. No idol worship. Yehovah is Israel's Lord. The Shabbats are to be observed. And God's dwelling place, the tabernacle, is to be scrupulously maintained according to his regulations. There are two reasons that these four principles are stated over and over in the Torah. First, the Israelites at that time had a very pagan mindset. They did worship idols. They did worship a number of gods. They weren't observing the seventh-day Sabbath rest, which the Lord set up from the beginning of the world. And because of these iniquities, the barriers to uncleanness and commonness that God had set up between mankind and his earthly dwelling place, the wilderness tabernacle, tabernacle, they had to be maintained without compromise. Second, these principles represent a kind of foundational core that spells out the basis of Israel's relationship with their God and vice versa. So with that in mind, verse 3 says, if you follow my laws, that is all the rules and regulations of Torah, that's when all the good stuff happens. Later in verse 14 it says that if you break my laws, that's when all the bad stuff happens. Now here's something that's rather easy to forget. Our response to God's commands always brings consequences with them. There's no neutral position. That, that, that is the system of God's justice. And we can't escape it. Okay? Obedience brings positive consequences. Disobedience brings negative consequences. The Bible calls the positive consequences of obedience blessings. The negative consequences are called curses. Okay. The blessings of being obedient to the law brings us life with God. The curse of being disobedient to the law brings separation from God. Now this listing of blessings and curses of Leviticus 22 uh, rather 26, follows a well-known and well-established form for that era and that region of the world. The laws found in the codes of Lapit Ishtar, okay, the, the old Babylonian kingdom, the Hittites and the laws of Hammurabi and others usually spell out a series of laws. And then it concludes with blessings upon those who obey them, curses upon those who rebel. Now I tell you this because there is such pressure 
in the scientific community to constantly try to make Leviticus out to be not something received by Moses on Mount Sinai about 1300 B.C. by Bible chronology, but rather something created from the, from the minds of the Jews after they returned from their exile in the new Babylonian kingdom around 530 B.C. And it also serves to prove that these Israelites were not an isolated people who disregarded the world around them. They were very much in tune with all those humans they shared the globe with. Especially those who surrounded them in the Middle East, Mesopotamia. So, Yehovah had quite a task ahead of him in making the Israelites a people separate and distinct from all others. Now, one more thing. I want you to recognize that the main thrust of this chapter is that it is addressing Israel as a nation. It's speaking to the whole congregation of Israel, not just the leaders or some individuals. Now, while in some cases, each of the blessings and curses that will be established can be applied individual by individual, this is really a lot more about how Jehovah is going to react to Israel as a group, as a community of people. That said, what is a nation but a large group of individuals? So, if one in a thousand in a nation's citizens are disobedient to God, the overall effect on the nation is probably small. If a hundred and a thousand are disobedient, the overall effect on the nation is probably a little more significant. If five hundred and a thousand are disobedient, the effect on the nation's well-being grows darker. And at some point, and I don't know where it is, the cumulative effect of many individuals within a nation or group being disobedient puts that entire nation or group at a risk. This is why the punishments we saw in all the previous chapters that went along with the laws of Leviticus seem so harsh. God wants to call out those who are habitually disobedient because it can be infectious. And the danger of that infection of some can cause him to smite the nations as a whole in order that his justice will be carried out. You see, when it comes to national judgment, the fact that you are righteous may not sway God from acting severely towards your nation as a whole. Which means that even the most righteous and obedient can get caught up in that judgment as sort of collateral damage. Well, we see that exact thing happen in the Bible at every turn, don't we? The first blessing Jehovah promises Israel is that the rains will come when they're supposed to. See, this is an agrarian society. It's not only if they get rain, but how much and when that all plays a significant role in the crop yields. And as we saw in the disaster of Katrina in New Orleans, the basics of life begin with food and water. Without those two things, the rest is meaningless. And this blessing concerning rain 
continues by saying in verse 5 that the crops are going to be so robust that the Hebrews will barely have time to finish harvesting one for it's time to start harvesting the next one. Okay. The, the next promise of blessing is security. Peace and security in their land. And after that's a promise that Israel is going to have peace with their neighbors. And before we look at the next several blessings that result from observance of the Torah commands, I want you to notice something. When it comes to the good things that result from obedience, God says, I will. In other words, God is going to actively cause the blessings to flow. Now, that's something that we usually kind of take for granted. Sure, God's going to cause the good blessings to flow. It's not passive. It's not allowing. When we get to the curses resulting from disobedience, we're also going to see each bad thing, each punishment preceded by I will. Not passively, but actively the Lord will bring judgments upon those who disobey his commands. The Lord will cause calamities to happen. Now, I have to tell you that while most of we disciples of Yeshua would shake our heads and say Amen in full agreement with what I just said, most of us would also have a tendency to question whether the bad things that happen to us or to others or to our nation are God actively personally dealing with us. Somewhere along the line, a good section of the church has decided that our salvation is sort of an inoculation against the divinely directed consequences of sinful behaviors. Or that God is kind of a kindly old grandfather who winks and nods at the indiscretions of his people. Well, that's not what the scripture says. Right? And it's not the picture that the Bible paints as a whole. Back to the list of blessings. It says that wild animals won't torment. Armies won't cross Israel's land as they make war with an enemy. And next, if for some reason war erupts, Israel will be very strong. It will win easily. And by the way, this talk of wild animals was right on the money. The land of Canaan was full of bears and lions at this time. Those carnivores were a huge problem, both the flocks and people then. And in verse 9, as part of God's favor upon Israel, the people will be fertile. They will multiply greatly. And naturally, this is part of that covenant promise that Jehovah gave to Abraham, that Abraham would father a great nation and that his descendants would be a great multitude. Now, in verse 11... Jehovah says that he's going to dwell among Israel. Oh, what a great honor for the Hebrews. And that Israel will be his people and he will be Israel's God. This is a sheep-shepherd relationship that's being described. The sheep shall obey the shepherd and in turn the shepherd shall guarantee the sheep's security and well-being. So let's review. 
What is it that God sees as blessing for his people? In the Lord's economy, what does blessing amount to? Because that is what we must learn to agree with and hope for. He says it's abundant food, it's peace, security, safety from enemies and beasts that would do harm, having many children, and God's perpetual presence in their midst, guaranteeing the continuation of his covenants. Let me give you another word for this divine, divine blessing. Prosperity. What we just read was God's definition of prosperity. Now I'm afraid our definition of prosperity is a little different than that. Isn't it? Now I challenge you to find a definition of prosperity anywhere in the scriptures as amounting to an enormous bank account, a number of houses, a fleet of luxury automobiles, a powerful position in the public or private job sector, a large closet full of the latest designer clothes, vacations in Europe, and early retirement. Now, I'm certainly not going to condemn these things. I'm saying that this prosperity gospel that has become the rage is a false gospel. Because that gospel says God wants you, it's his goal for you to be materially wealthy. He wants you to have that second Mercedes. He wants you to be draped in gold jewelry. In fact, as a child of God, you're entitled to all that wealth. The only reason you don't have it is because you don't believe in the prosperity gospel. Is God against our having these nice things? Generally speaking, no. Is it God's purpose that all his children achieve these things? Generally speaking, no. But is it is purpose that if his people are obedient to him, that he will meet all their needs according to his will. The things that are important to him that ought to be important to us are what defines biblical prosperity. Starting in verses 14 and 15, we find out what happens if Israel does not obey God's Torah commands. This amounts to breaking his covenant, God says. And the result is a whole series of curses on the lawbreakers. And here we go again with the I wills. Jehovah says, I will do this to you, I will do that to you. And these are pretty unpleasant I wills. To wit, it begins with, I'll wreak misery on you. And of course, the first misery is poor health. Those of us, us who have been privileged to live long enough finally get it that we don't have our health we don't have much else worth anything next is that the fruits of Israel's labors will not be enjoyed by them but by their enemies and that Israel be, will be defeated by their enemies even more says verse 17 constant fear and anxiety is going to be their lot that they'll flee even when nobody is chasing them. 
Notice that verse 18 says, And if, for all that, you still don't obey me, here's what is happening concerning God's curses for the disobedient. He doesn't always immediately destroy. Usually he starts to warn through discipline. The disciplinary actions at first are less severe. But they can be ratcheted up if it has to be. Things start to happen from which an individual can usually recover. He makes you miserable, not dead. He makes your health go downhill. He makes it so that you can't ever seem to get ahead. The faster you run, the behinder you get. Your enemies get the better of you and you're in constant turmoil. Even when real dangers aren't present, it feels like they are. And you live in fear and depression and anxiety for reasons you don't even understand. Jehovah's discipline is about love. God's God disciplines his people because he loves his people. His hope is that discipline will cause his people to reverse their disobedient course of action. He doesn't want to have to turn his holy back upon them and then certainly he doesn't want to destroy them. But he will. And he did it in the past. And we know that this principle is not only for the physical nation of Israel. In addition, at the least, it applies to all believers because all believers are under the covenants of Israel whether we realize it or not. And, and since there are believers in virtually every nation on earth, then every nation on earth, it seems to me, is subject to this principle of discipline of Leviticus 26. So notice the implication. If Israel realizes that they're suffering under God's hand of discipline and they repent and they change their ways, they return to obedience, then the discipline stops. Even better, the blessings start anew. This is why it's so crucial for us to understand when bad things start to happen in our nation, when catastrophes come, when there's a series, never-ending series of wars and turmoil and disasters, that this is discipline from Jehovah, not bad luck. Okay. When we look inward and we ask, what have we done to arouse his anger? We're headed in the right direction. When we look up and ask God why he has abandoned us, then we say the fault is with him. When we take it to heart that it is his discipline upon us, upon us that's occurring, then we have the opportunity to do something about it. When we don't, when we simply deny it, when we think our job is to try and insulate ourselves from disasters by building stronger houses or buying better insurance or or, or taking better care of our bodies, or reorganizing our governmental disaster services, or we just blow this whole thing off as it's just our turn. It's just life. You know, naturally not everything that happens to us is God's wrath, nor is discipline. Bad things do happen to good people. 
That's the state of this world until Messiah comes to make it right. You know, I don't ever want us to forget that Hurricane Katrina was born on the very weekend Israel succumbed to the United States' demand that Israel's land be divided. The very weekend. And that Jewish citizens were forcibly ejected from their homes in Gaza. This is not a coincidence. It is Yehovah's hand of discipline upon us as a nation. I'm hoping beyond hope that pastors and priests and ministers and rabbis and teachers and our churches and synagogues across this land will understand that this was a divine discipline. Say it and explain just what the affront to our Lord was. I mean, the people of New Orleans were no better or worse than anybody else in our nation. They were just the ones who caught the brunt of it. Even though it also had a bad effect on our nation as a whole, didn't it? Okay. I hope that people just like us will understand that we've been rightly reminded by a just God that he's going to do what he says he'll do. Unfortunately, all I have read, seen, and generally heard about this is the exact opposite. Religious leaders running to tell their flocks not to think that anything about this is God's wrath. I mean, this isn't, don't think, don't even worry about it. He, he would never do such a thing. He's all merciful. He's a God of love. And only the God of the Old Testament would punish. And we all know he's gone. Isn't that the sense of it? Therefore, most Christians have no idea of this connection between Israel, Gaza, and Hurricane Katrina. I mean, my goodness, too many Christians don't even know Israel from Australia. They don't know anything about God's Torah and so don't even recognize that they disobeyed him or what that disobedience was. If you have no other reason to stand with Israel and against those, including your own government, who would divide Israel's land and give it to their enemies then for Pete's sakes do it out of enlightened self-preservation because when a nation is disciplined the righteous are affected right along with the wicked so verse 18 has Jehovah turning up the heat and he says he's going to make the skies like iron and the earth like copper and what this means is there's not going to be any rain from the sky and the ground's going to become dry. The springs will stop flowing. Result, crop failure. In verse 21, the idea is that all the previous disciplines have still been ignored. So more terrible punishments come. But even more we get a glimpse into the other side of disobedience. That is, on our side we don't follow God's commands. And on his side, what this amounts to in his view is our hostility towards him. Therefore, a whole series of escalated bad things happen. And naturally, these bad things are described in terms of being the exact opposite of the blessings promised from obedience. Obey, and wild animals will be restrained from harming your family. O obey, your children will be protected from harm and you'll have many children. Disobey and I will send wild animals after you. These wild beasts will kill your children, reduce the size of your family and your flocks. The Hebrew word used here 
for I will send or I will loose wild animals upon you as they hishlachti. Okay, it is a rarely used word construction. Right, and the idea of it's to drive, to literally cause a stampede of wild animals to descend on the rebellious Israelites. It emphasizes that this is not God removing his hand of protection. It's about God. It's not about God allowing natural phenomenon to plague Israel. It's about a supernatural act of God, an act of Jehovah putting it in these carnivorous wild beasts primitive minds to attack and kill humans. And of course the implication is that the number of wild beasts would multiply. Now let me just remind you that the usual way God punishes is by means of using normal and usual things of nature but using them in a very supernatural way. When we recall the plagues upon Egypt, they were all things that existed and happened regularly in nature. The supernatural element was they happened at Moses' command. And they happened in such an exaggerated and amplified way as to wreak havoc. The Nile normally produces a lot of frogs, but not so many that they float across the great Egyptian cities like a crawling carpet. Egypt, of course, had flies and gnats. But not so many that they tormented the people and the animals to the point of misery and even death. People got boils on their skin from time to time, but not every person at the same time, and certainly not boils that covered their bodies from head to foot. Hurricanes happen normally in nature. But Category 5 hurricanes, the size of the entire Gulf of Mexico that hit precisely in a way to cause maximum damage to a major U.S. city and disrupt our vital energy and grain supplies coast to coast is pretty unusual. Even in Revelation, the book of Revelation, when we find the Lord judging the world, he's going to use things of nature against us. It says the sun, which of course is normally hot and bright, But at his command, it's going to burn hotter and brighter. Scientists have been fascinated for some time with why it is that planet Earth has been spared cataclysmic collisions by meteors and comets for the last several thousands of years when every other body in our solar system seems to experience them on a very regular basis. Well, in the very near future, I don't think they're going to ask that question too much anymore. Because according to John the Revelator, we will be hit with meteors and comets and it's going to devastate the Earth's population and ecology. I mean, goodness, Revelation 6, 8. And further, in Leviticus 26, where I've just told you about, we see this whole series of I wills. God's going to cause it. We find out in Revelation, it says, authority was given to God's, God's angels to cause it to happen. doesn't sound a whole lot like God just lifting his protection. God's response to man's rebellion has never changed. 
The only thing that's changed is the teaching about it. Now, right about now, you'd think somebody might ask, what kind of dumbbell would continue to challenge God with all this horror happening to him as a result? What kind of leader of any nation would find his people getting deathly sick, starving on a widespread scale, wild animals suddenly roaming unchecked and attacking humans, the weather becoming unbelievably violent and deadly, foreign enemies just lining up to seek to annihilate them, their children dying, common sense becoming a thing of the past, and yet keep right on doing the same things that are bringing Jehovah's harsh hand of justice down upon them and their people. Any of that sound familiar? Well, man being what he is, we forget pretty quickly and we don't learn very easily. So in verse 23, God says that despite all of this incomprehensible destruction they're experiencing, if his people still won't obey him, just when it can't possibly get any worse, it's gonna. And he says he will wreak vengeance for the covenant or execute the vengeance of the covenant or some such thing. Sorry. The Hebrew phrase, the Hebrew phrase is getting at something very important and it is that the purpose of all of these punishments is to bring about the promises written in the covenant from both a positive and negative nature. In other words, because the covenant has promised these curses if Israel disobeys God, then these things will be done because God never changes and he never goes back on his promises. Further, that part of the result of these bad things justly being visited upon his disobedient people is that the ultimate divine goals of the covenant will also happen. He guarantees that too. Quick case in point. Jehovah's people were scattered and dispersed for their rebellion against him. And when at the appointed time after the Lord had prepared the Holy Lands for their return, it seemed that the vast majority of the Jewish population of the world didn't wish to go home. They were pretty comfortable where they were. Yet one of the promises that the Lord made was that his people, while in dispersal among the nations, they would be persecuted and murdered there simply for being Hebrews. It was that, that greatest persecution and genocide in history against the Jews in Germany, that event we call the Holocaust, that actually led to the Jews returning to their homeland and the nation of Israel being reborn in 1948. A negative aspect of the covenant occurred because of the Jewish people's stubbornness and rebellion, but part of the result was that a positive aspect of the covenant came about anyway. This is the whole notion behind the words of Leviticus 26.25. Now I think it's fascinating 
that next we're told that going into the cities for protection won't help those who go against the Lord God. And of course, in the realities of the era, this was referring to the fact that typically there was a walled city that was surrounded by many small unprotected villages. Now, even though a lot of people lived within these walled cities, the, the majority of population lived in the thousands of outlying villages. We know that in the United States. The vast majority of our population doesn't live in our great cities. They live scattered in little communities like ours. The blue-collar labor and the field workers lived in the villages, while the leaders and the teachers and the merchants and the government officials lived inside the city walls, typically. When an attack was imminent, the people of the villages immediately fled to the walled cities for protection. It was understood by everybody that that would be the system. Now, isn't it interesting that in our day, our American cities, with all the levels of government and police protection and private security, they are what has become the prime target of our terrorist enemies. And that after a century of many coming in off the farm for a more secure and predictable life in the cities of America, many city dwellers are now trying to find ways to move out to the rural areas because of this threat. And then verse 26 speaks of famine. Just as the first and foremost blessing of God back in verse 4 was abundant food and advanced in very severe curse is lack of food. This idea of ten women baking bread in a single oven and then doling out bread by weight is speaking of severe food shortage and rationing what little bit there is. And yet another transition to even worse consequences for not recognizing what's happening is Jehovah's judgment for his people's hostility against him. And we're told in verse 29 that people will become so desperate from hunger that they will literally eat their own sons and daughters. Would a people who had for centuries carefully even drained the blood from the animals they intended to eat and before that, that ate meat only that had been offered at the bronze altar of the wilderness tabernacle, would that same people ever turn to eating human flesh under any circumstances to save their own lives? Yeah. And they did. Right? And the Bible records when it happened. In the long siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, in the early 6th century B.C., the Bible reports in Lamentations that the Hebrew women killed, cooked, and ate their children while huddled starving inside the walls of the holy city. They're not the only people to do such a thing. Now understand that this section of Leviticus 26 is speaking of the lowest lows. The worst of the worst. You see, death's not the worst thing that can happen to a person. Eating the flesh of your own children to keep yourself alive is worse than that. But notice what goes hand in hand with this abominable, unthinkable, really, 
place that mankind, in this case Israel, had sunk. Rampant idol worship. Verse 30 has the Lord saying, I will cut down your high places, your altars of worship, and then you'll be killed and your lifeless bodies placed upon those lifeless idols that you just love to bow down to. Let's examine that a little bit. What's being destroyed here is in Hebrew, Bama. It is the word that has been typically translated as high places. And as far as it goes, it is correct as long as we grasp that a high place is a term that eventually came to mean an altar of sacrifice or a place where worship of a deity occurred. That's a high place. And understand that invariably when that term was invoked it was speaking of a pagan altar of sacrifice or pagan place of worship. It could speak in later books of the Old Testament of altars of sacrifice to the God of Israel but generally speaking these were unauthorized altars even if they are erected in his name. Okay. These are high places that the Hebrews should not have built so they were not looked at in a positive light. Now, because of the science of language cognates, we now know that the Hebrew word Bama comes from the Ugaritic word Bemat. And Bemat means back, like the back of a horse. It's a place upon which a burden is loaded. But it's also a place that's high up on the anatomy of a four-legged beast, his back. Therefore, the Bible will at times refer to the back of a mountain or the shoulder of a hill. And such a reference means a high up ridge, an upper part of the train. So the Hebrew word Bama carries with it all those contexts. It says what's also going to be destroyed are the incense altars that were used at these pagan high places, pagan Bama. Finally, we find where Yehovah says, your carcasses will be thrown upon your lifeless idols. Actually, the Hebrew that is usually translated as idols is more literally fetishes. Fetishes. In other words, it should say, your carcasses will be thrown upon your lifeless fetishes. What's a fetish? A fetish is any object thought to have magic power. It's also something to which someone is abnormally devoted. Something that arouses erotic feelings. But there's nothing inherently erotic at all about that thing. I mean, we've all heard about people who have a foot fetish or a glove fetish, or so on. So what's being spoken of here is something well beyond what we usually think of as an idol, like a, a little wooden or stone or clay statue of a god. Rather, God is speaking of those things in the lives of his people that are supremely important to them, but they shouldn't be. Things that abnormally grab hold of them. And they, the people, they won't let go for anything. 
So the thought in this verse is that his people will be killed and their bodies will fall while they're still with a death grip on those worthless, lifeless, useless things that mean more to them than life itself or more important, life with the God of Israel. Things that they've counted on for security or that make them feel so good. Things they have glorified in defiance of God. Things they have declared as holy that God hasn't. Things that they have pronounced as good, but the Lord maybe has pronounced them as evil. Hear me. This is not my allegory or some twisting of an ancient Bible verse. This is what it meant to the people at that time. And it still means that to this day. Oh, but the Lord isn't done yet. Dishing out the curses for disobedience against his law. Next he says he'll destroy his people's cities and their places of worship, meaning places they had actually set aside for worshiping him. For worshiping him. But guess what? He doesn't get any honor from those places. God says he's not going to savor their fragrant aromas. No, he's not talking about how nice the Israelites smelled. He's talking about their burnt offerings. Remember how we've talked at length about this constant mention in the early chapters of Leviticus about Jehovah smelling the smoke right, from the burnt offerings to him and regarding it as a pleasant and pleasing aroma? The idea here is that the temple where sacrifice is made will be destroyed and that even if Israel chooses to sacrifice from the ruins of the temple or elsewhere, the Lord won't accept their offerings because their state of sin is so great. I mean, holy mackerel. In other words, the sacrificial system of the blood of the animals the Hebrews counted on for atonement won't even be acceptable to God because the people were so impure of heart and deed. Let me tell you something. Don't ever let anybody tell you that the sacrificial system of the Torah was mechanical, legalistic, and useless. It was God-ordained for the Israelites' benefit, and it did exactly what God intended it to do. It only became useless when they became faithless. When the Israelites turned away from the Lord and tried to use the sacrificial system like a magic spell or use it in some unauthorized way, then it was indeed useless. The sacrificial system always required fidelity to the God of Israel and a heart full of faith by those who trusted in him. It's no different with Yeshua HaMashiach. His sacrifice is only efficacious for those who have faith in him. Now, what his sacrifice accomplished was somewhat different and on a higher level than what the sacrificial system accomplished, but that's another matter for another lesson. Please see the precise parallel between these verses of Leviticus 26 where God is saying that he will not accept their sacrifices just because they do them in his name, in his temple, even generally in the way God told the Israelites to do them because their hearts weren't right. Versus 
what Jesus said about those who will offer their own form of sacrifices to God in Christ's name, but they won't be acceptable either. Matthew 7.22 Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And in your name we cast out demons. In your name we performed miracles. And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. See, the words of Leviticus 26 are the context for Yeshua's words of Matthew 7. As Revelation reveals, in the end times, our church buildings are going to be chocked full of people who will come every Sunday to sing in the choir, serve as deacons and elders, faithfully tithe, wouldn't miss a Wednesday night service to save their life, know all the right things to say, yet because these folks, wonderful people, just went through the motions, enjoyed the Christian traditions, but their hearts were not filled with the Holy Spirit because they never put their trust in Yeshua. They were cast out. They were told by Jesus to depart from him. Scary, scary, scary stuff. And by the way, what words did Jesus use to identify this group of people who he said, I won't accept? He said, you who practice what? Lawlessness. Now those of you whose Bible say you who practice iniquities, just cross that word out right now because it's a terrible translation. Right? And it leads you down useless rabbit trails. The Greek word, hear this because we're almost done for tonight, is anomia. Let me quote a couple of standard concordance, concordances for you as to exactly what that Greek word means. Anomia. The condition of being without law because of ignorance of the law, because of violating law, contempt for the law. Yeshua wasn't speaking about common criminals. This isn't about breaking the Roman system of laws in his day, or even the American system of laws in our day. For any Jew, including Jesus, there was only one law. When Jesus referred to the law, it always only meant one thing. The law of Moses. What was it that these people were doing that Jesus said amounted to lawlessness? It says they were prophesying and casting out demons in his name. That was their crime. Casting out demons in Yeshua's name sure wasn't against any Roman law. No, the issue was that these people who were casting out demons and prophesying in his name were doing so without faith and without the Torah, the law, written on their hearts. This is what the Bible means by lawlessness. And so just as the sacrificial system was not for the whole world, but only for the Israelites, so the sacrifice of Christ was not for the whole world, but only for that part of the world that would trust him. 
I mean, I'm heartsick overhearing preachers and pastors yell the politically correct. He died for the whole world. No, he didn't. He died for those of the world who would trust him. And as a result of that statement, he died for the whole world, we have gay ministers, churches who don't believe one biblical thing about Christ. And we have the doctrine that a merciful God wouldn't send anybody to hell. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but has eternal life. And sadly, that's only a few people. A remnant compared to the billions and billions who've come and gone on this planet. We'll finish up Leviticus 26 next time.